Everybody awake? Did your football team win yesterday? We shall now all sing the Tigers fight song. If anybody knows the words, come on down here. All right, if, you, if you need a copy of God's Word, raise your hand and uh, these two gentlemen will be glad to get you one. You can take your Bibles, devices, uh, whatever you're using, turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be in 21 primarily today, but we're going to start in 20, set the context. So Acts chapter 20, just a couple of things I want to mention to you uh, before we get started. Number one, Peter, I mentioned a moment ago, it's prayer time, but we're going to have a congregational meeting today, both campuses, we're going to come out here and, and right after church, we'll kind of tear this down, and as a matter of fact, when we get ready, what, at the end of the day, instead of stacking all the chairs, uh, just stack like these two, and then leave that one, we're going to put some tables out here so people can sit and eat instead of having to lay down on the parking lot, and uh, so, you can go out, and we got some food trucks already out there getting ready. If you don't want that food, you can go get your food and come back. Anyway, we're going to eat here together, hang out for a while, and then we're going to have a meeting about 2 o'clock, just kind of share uh, end of our fiscal year. We're, going, we're in a new fiscal year, starting September 1st, we were. Kind of share where we are, and uh, uh, just share our hearts with you as leaders, and let's, how, things we can pray about together as the family of God. And uh, so, I hope you can eat and hang around for that, or go eat and come back. We'll try to start the meeting about 2 o'clock and see what the rain's going to do. Maybe it will hold off and we'll just uh, see what the Lord's going to do. Now, one disclaimer, just show you the grace of God. I had nothing to do with the orange food truck that's on the parking lot. <laughs> Dear friend of mine owns that truck, but uh, I love, yeah, it's God's truck, right? Yeah. Well, I love him anyway, and uh, we're very close, so... Uh, Anyway, food is really good, I know that. Uh, probably really all that matters at that point when you go out there to get food, you'd like it to be good. So there's a couple of them out there in a dessert truck, and so we will be here right after church. So when we get ready to tear down, stack these, don't stack these, and then we'll bring some t- tables out. Now, uh, one other thing, and then we're going to get into God's Word. If you, um, just because of a time-sensitive thing, if you want your child to play basketball this year, there's some sign-up forms right outside my pal- next to my palatial office right up there. You'll see them. You can uh, fill out that form if you'd like for your child to play basketball this year for the church. So you can do that right after today, right after the service. Everybody awake now? Need to tell a few jokes? I'm in, I'm in wedding mode. So I had a wedding last night, and our own Logan Stewart got married last night, Chad and Amanda's... Uh, He's not a little boy. He's a big, he's a big man. And uh, it's just very, a real celebration for the kingdom. And, and um, doing one next weekend, another uh, very special uh, family known forever. I won't tell you how long because they might be embarrassed. But uh, Pat and Danny Brown's granddaughter is getting married next weekend. And then Stan Wilson's son, his lovely fiance Faith, and getting married in uh, November. And I got another one in December. So they've now called me Mr. Weddings. So I've decided that what I'm going to do is become a wedding singer. <laughs> because the moment I become a wedding singer, they will no longer ask me to show up or participate. It's kind of like the St. Louis Cardinals. As of last weekend, I'm no longer allowed in Bush Stadium. Uh, because apparently every time I attend, they, they not only lose, they're embarrassing. 
And so uh, if I believed in jinxes, I would be believing in one. But uh, as a, although the, the greatest thing about last weekend, all the guys would go, we have a great time. It's really a lot of fun. But, but Darren uh, sartorially will be uh, attired. We found a shirt that is unbelievably cool. And uh, Darren bought it before I could. So that's a good point. Uh, we, we sent a picture to our wives, and my wife said, you, you're not wearing that, are you? And, and Darren's wife said, I like that. So, you know, taste is a matter of preference, is it not? And my wife preferred that I not buy that shirt or buy it and not come home. So I had to make a decision. All right, turn to Acts chapter 20, and let's look at Paul as he heads to Jerusalem. Heading to Jerusalem. This is the end of the missionary journeys, and we are targeting... We are getting near the, our study in the book of Acts. Marcus and I were together last week, and we spent some time together every Monday just discussing where we are in the Word and where we want to go. And, and we plan to be through the book of Acts by November 2020. No. Uh, we, we're going to be through the book of Acts uh, uh, around Thanksgiving and in uh, transition. What the Lord lays on our hearts, we shall see. But uh, it's been personally uh, uh, tremendously edifying for me, and we're not finished yet, but where we're, where we're at now is that Paul is coming into Jerusalem. It's the end of his three missionary journeys, and he's been openly out ministering. But now as he reaches Jerusalem to the end of the book of Acts, we will see Paul as a prisoner. He will be uh, different places, and he's got, his desire, as we have seen several times as we're studying this over the last month in particular, is that he really wants to go to Rome and share the gospel there. Obviously, Rome was a very significant city in uh, the ancient world, and he really wants to get to Rome and share the gospel. But he's going to get there. He's not going to get the, there the way that he intended. So we're going to see him in, a, in 21, 22, and 23 at Jerusalem over the next couple of weeks. And he knows that this journey that's ahead of him as he heads to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome is going to be very difficult for him. Look at chapter 20, verse 22. Let's start there. 20:22. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, knowing, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. The Holy Spirit, I'm led to go to Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So here's what he knows. God wants me to go to Jerusalem. I'm going. And the only thing that, I, that God has told me that awaits me is what? Chains and tribulations. And so we're all lined up, signed up. Where do I sign up? That's what I, I want. And we talked about this a number of times, and it's, you cannot uh, emphasize it enough in the life of a believer. God's will is always perfect, always best, but it is not always painless. It hurts at times. As a matter of fact, Scripture makes it very clear. Paul, Paul would later write to Timothy, his son in the faith, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, and you know the verse, what's the rest of it? You will be persecuted. It comes with the territory. Jesus said... Why would you be amazed that the world hates you? It will hate you. Why? Because it hates me. And the word Christian, the, the title that we bear, the, 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 who we are, 
literally means in the original usage of the word, little Christ. It was a designation that was given to them that we're Christians. We're followers of this Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be the Christ or the Messiah or the Savior. So to be a Christian means you are a little Christ, not deity, but you want to glorify him. You want to magnify his name. You want people to know who he is. That's why when you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, you ever want to do a great simple little Bible study that will just set you on fire about your faith? Just take the epistles of Paul, nothing else, just the epistles of Paul, and write at the top of a piece of paper, or however you want to do it, the phrase, in Christ, or Christ in me, and then just go through his epistles and ignore everything else, except when you see that phrase, in Christ, or Christ in me, then just make a bullet point under what he says. For example, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation, bullet New creation. Old things have passed away. Bullet. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Bullet. All things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Then he man said, Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You're born again. You get a new mindset. You get a new identity. That's who you are. That's just one example. And there are many, many others just in his epistles alone. Just a great, simple little devotional type Bible study that one can do to be encouraged in your faith. Now, there are many, many others. That's just one that, that's really been helpful to me over the years. So, from this point on in the book of Acts, as he heads toward Jerusalem, chains and tribulations await him. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to end up being imprisoned. And God's going to do some amazing things for him, for him through him, as a prisoner. In Ephesians chapter 6, In Ephesians chapter 6, as a prisoner, Paul wrote these words. For me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. I love that phrase. I'm an ambassador in chains, that in it, by imprisonment, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. An ambassador in chains. So if you're going through a difficult circumstance, whatever it might be, the number one call in your life as a believer is you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. He would use that word a couple of times. This case, as an ambassador in chains. In other places, as an ambassador with the word of reconciliation. You're sharing. You represent the King of Kings. You're an envoy to the creator of the universe. You are an envoy on behalf of the King of Kings. You're an ambassador for him. This case, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. Philippians chapter 1, Paul said these words, written again from imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and he was chained up and expecting to be executed, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And the theme of that book in which he wrote those words is rejoice in your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. What he's saying is, I'm chained up. I'm expecting to be executed, but it's helped you. It's encouraged you. That's a good thing. And for me to live as Christ, written in the same chapter, which I just quoted like nine verses later, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Gain. So here's what's going to happen to him. He's headed to Jerusalem. All he knows is chains and tribulations await me. He's going to spend two years in prison in Caesarea. 
He never planned to go to Caesarea and, and be in prison, but he's going to end up spending two years in prison there. Three years as a prisoner in Rome, as an ambassador in change. Whatever God has for me, remember. Because it's, it's, so many people preach it the wrong way. God's will is always perfect. God's will for you is always what you should seek. And it is, does not mean it is always going to go the way you want it to go. But he does not make mistakes. God uses Paul's time in prison to share the gospel with a lot of Roman officials, possibly even the emperor of Rome. Many theologians believe, we don't know that for an absolute fact, but many believe that he actually shared the gospel with the emperor. But he definitely shared it with, with as we're going to see, Felix and Festus, governors, rulers, a lot of soldiers. Also, while imprisoned, he wrote Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon. That's a pretty good day's work, isn't it? Incredible books. The little book of Philippians alone. And if you heard me talk about how much I love that book, that little book, four chapters, you read it, simple read, meditate on it. I do it on a regular basis. I memorize most of it. Uh, it will, it's just so encouraging all the time. So many things that are in that one little two-page in your Bible epistle written by Paul while in prison, chained to a Roman soldier 24-7, expecting to be executed, have his head chopped off. And he writes, rejoice in the Lord. I, a prisoner, being di- am dying on your behalf. That's a good thing. I'm excited about that. So as a prisoner, he writes that. Paul believed, as the early church believed, that Jesus' return was imminent. I've been a Christian now almost 50 years. You know how long I've been hearing that Jesus is coming back any day? 50 years. 50 years. Could he come back any day? Absolutely. It might be another 500 years. It might be another 1,000 years. They expected, that's that First Thessalonians 4, the famous passage that I want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is going to return. They, expect, they thought Jesus was coming back during their lifetime. Same thing. Every generation since has said the same thing. Imagine you were a believer and you lived during World War II. Particularly if you lived in Europe. Wouldn't you be praying, God, Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus, and expecting it? Yeah, I think so. So, Paul, that generation, when he's writing, they expected Jesus to come back. That return was imminent. So he, it was a burden for him. He was determined, I want to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost and share with my Jewish brethren there. Because at Pentecost, we're going to see the next couple of weeks, Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They would also come a couple of times a year, but particularly and specifically at Pentecost, Passover, they would come to celebrate. They would be in Jerusalem. He wanted to get there by Pentecost. Earlier he wanted to get there by Passover. He didn't make it. Now, I desperately want to be there by Pentecost. But that wasn't God's will for him. Now, was it Paul's burning desire to get there and preach to the Jews? Absolutely it was. He loved Israel. He writes in another place, If I could, I would die for my Jewish brethren by blood so that they could be saved. 
if I could die. He loved them that much. But the call on his life was not to be the apostle to the Hebrews, even though he preached the Jews. But the call on his life was to be the apostle to what group of people? Gentiles, non-Jews. God had a bigger plan for him. That's why, again, God's will is always perfect, always best, even though we may not like it in the moment, we may not understand it in the moment. Why am I in Caesarea sitting in jail for two years? Why am I chained in Rome for three years? I need to be out spreading the gospel. That's what Jesus, that's what you told me you wanted me to do. Yeah, but I need you to write Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and give Randy something to talk about 2,000 years from now. God knows what he's doing. And all we want to do is get in on it. Lord, let us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your name be hallowed. Not ours, not our plans, not our... Unfortunately, so many times in church, what we want to do, we've got this master plan, this great thing that we want done, and what do we want God to do? Just kind of rubber stamp it, Lord. We know what we're doing. Just bless it. When what we should be doing is begging God, Lord, what do you want? Show us your way. Show us your will. We'll do it. Show it to us. So, let's look at his arrival at Jerusalem. Number one on your handout. Chapter 21, verse 15. 21, 15. After these days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. So Luke is with him. We, plural pronoun, Luke and others. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple whom we were, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James was the leader, Jesus' brother, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. When he agreed to them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles. Now remember, he's at Jerusalem. These are the leaders of the church at Jerusalem. This is a, these are Jewish people. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. So the first thing I want you to see, context is so important. Remember, Acts is a book of history and all that we see that's going on. So he goes to Jerusalem. And they're celebrating his ministry. They, verse 17, they received us gladly at Jerusalem by the brethren, Jewish Christians. And one of the reasons, we talked about this before, and it's not mentioned here, but historically, one of the reasons they are excited that Paul has arrived is that he's bringing with them a huge offering that he's collected. This is so important. That he's collected from the churches out in Asia that he's been ministering to, which are primarily Gentiles, not Jews. And he had been collecting this offering from the Gentile Christians to take to their Jewish brethren, fellow Christians at Jerusalem. Remember, historically, as this is written, Jews and Gentiles, did they hang out at the same country clubs together? Did they all go to Pickwick together and boat? Did they go down to Orange Beach and hang out together? No, they hated one another. And the institution that God had put on the planet, ordained by Jesus Christ himself, when he had said, this is my church, 
Upon this rock I will build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the Great Commission, all we've been talking about in the book of Acts, as you go to the nations, you Jewish guys, go talk to the Gentiles that you want nothing to do with. And it's happening. The church was transforming the world because As Paul would write over and over again, we are neither Jew nor Gentile. We're what? Christians. We are one in Christ. There's another bullet point. One. True unity. So notice, he's at Jerusalem. He's meeting with the leaders of the church at Jerusalem. Almost exclusively Jewish Now notice their celebration, verse 17. They received them gladly celebrating his ministry with the nations or with Gentiles. These are Jews that are celebrating conversion of Gentiles, receiving the offering from Gentiles to help them because they were hurting at Jerusalem. Such a beautiful picture of the way the church should work. This is the way it should be. And they're celebrating that from the Gentiles to the Jews. Verse 18, he meets with James and the elders privately just to report to them on all that's going on. We've talked about that in general. But notice what he also does, verse 18. The following day, he went in to James, all the elders were present. He greeted them. He told them, quote, in detail. So item by item is a literal meaning Greek. He went back and he said, this is what happened at Antioch. This is what happened here. This is what happened here. And he walks through all that God has done in his missionary journeys. All the great things that God has done among the Gentiles through the ministry of Paul. God did the work. Paul's not in there bragging about Paul. God has done this. Not Paul. God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would write these words. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Humility. Don't look at me. Look at what God is doing. I just simply get to be an instrument ministering to the Gentiles, what he called me to do. And he's blessing that, has blessed that. So he reports it. Verse 20, they glorified the Lord. Historic moment over Paul's report about what God has been doing with the Gentiles. They're praising God. This is not what went on at the Jerusalem Council, if you remember. God is doing an amazing work historically. But notice, starting in verse 20, the confusion over the law of Moses at Jerusalem. Verse 20, they glorified the Lord. Then they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are, quote, zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, Do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them, be purified with them, pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads, that they all may know those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Now, we'll set up the context, understand. Remember, they're at Jerusalem. These are Jews. 
So what's happening is the racial bigotry of the Jews versus the Gentiles, and the Romans are ruling them and leave them alone as long as they don't create any problem for Rome. They don't care what the crazy Jews do. Just go on and do your thing. But what's happened now, Romans who are Gentiles are the ruling people. In the last 20 years, Christianity has exploded in the Roman Empire. So the Romans, with all their pagan idolatry, and the, and the legalistic Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, both are not happy with Paul and his Christian thing. Felix, who's the new Roman governor, is responsible, we'll see him in a couple of weeks, to make all this work so that Rome doesn't get upset with him. It's about A.D. 57, and in 13 years, an incredible moment in history is going to occur, A.D. 70, when Rome simply levels Jerusalem, burns the temple, because a Jewish rebellion had broken out, and Rome said, okay, we've had it. And so they go in under Titus in A.D. 70 and just level it. Here's a quote from a book I was reading about this era. Quote, It was a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. One insurrection after another arose to challenge the Roman overlords, and Felix brutally suppressed them all. This only increased the Jewish hatred for Rome and inflamed anti-Gentile sentiments. It was a time when pro-Jewish sentiment was at its height, and friendliness with outsiders was viewed negatively, to say the least, end quote. So here you have the elders' concern in verse 20. Thousands of Jews have also become Christ followers. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. They are followers of Jesus as Messiah. Now notice verse 20. It says, quote, they are all zealous for the law of Moses. Now what does that mean? Well, primarily what's going on is they're devoted to the ceremonial aspects of the law, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the regulations, keeping the ritual, the dietary laws, those restrictions. They didn't necessarily see the law as a needs of salvation. They dealt with that at the Jerusalem Council. You don't have to keep the law to be saved. And you don't put your Jewish restrictions on Gentiles. If you, if you choose, and this is what Paul had agreed to and the rest of them, if you choose to keep the Jewish dietary laws, have at it. If you choose to keep the, the Jewish ceremonies, rituals, that's fine. But they are a, not a necessary requirement slash work for salvation. Salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone, not by keeping the law. They had all agreed to that, still did. But notice again verse 20. You see, brother, myriads of Jews believed, and they are zealous for the law. Verse 21. But they have been informed about you, Paul. Here it is. They didn't even have Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter and phones and email. And yet they have been able, false teachers, talked about this a lot over the last few weeks, false teachers had crept into the church, Judaizers, that group specifically of false teachers were coming in and saying, I know that you Christians have Paul up on a pedestal and you think the world of him and, he, and, and he's bringing all these Gentiles in and accepting Jesus as Messiah, but he is anti-Jewish. Even though he is a Jew and even though he was a Pharisee and even though he was on the Sanhedrin, he's teaching all the Jews who live among these Gentiles Number one, forsake Moses. Number two, don't circumcise your male children. Number three, 
you don't have to walk and live according to the customs of the Jews. So they've been informed about, about you, Paul. Informed is a cool word for those with religious background. How many of you grew up in a background where you had catechism? Remember the word catechism? That's the word, informed. That's where it comes from. We get our English word catechism. Catechism simply means everything's broken down, very uh, uh, systematic, and you learn it by rote over and over again. So here's what he's saying. By catechism, Paul, they're attacking you over and over. They got a list, and they're going over it over and over and over again with these Jewish Christians and telling them repeatedly they're learning by rote that you're anti-Jewish. And they're Jewish. They're confused. They've been informed by you. The Judaizers were drilling this into the people. These half-lies about Paul to discredit him. Now, verse 24. Take them, be purified by them, pay their expenses. Talk about more about this in a moment. That they all may know those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, verse 25, we've written and decided that they should observe no such thing. Jerusalem council. No such thing. Except that they should keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Jerusalem council. Here's what Paul actually taught. What you just read in verse 25. If... Jews want to keep the ceremonies and rituals things you talked about a moment ago. It's fine. You can do that. But don't force it on the Gentiles and tell them they have to. Paul himself, Paul himself circumcised Timothy, who was half Jewish, circumcised Timothy so Timothy could effectively witness to Jews. Paul himself took a Nazarite vow. He wasn't anti-doing those things if he chose to. What he was anti was putting anything in addition to faith alone and Christ alone, making any work necessary for salvation for Jews. You don't have to keep the law. If you choose to do so, that's fine. But it is not a requirement. All those things were a picture pointing to the Christ, all those Old Testament shadows, Jesus fulfilled those. An entire book of Hebrews was written on that subject, that, we, that Jesus is our high priest and he is superior to Moses, superior to the sacrificial system, superior to the Levitical priesthood, superior to the temple, because he is the fulfillment of, we no longer need the blood of bulls and goats, we have the blood of the Son of God. We, we have a heavenly home. We don't have to have an earthly temple. We are the temple. All of the book of Hebrews is just an amazing theological treatise on the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. The old covenant was the blood of bulls and goats. The new covenant is the blood of Jesus, who is the Christ. He is superior to all those things that will soon be written about to the Jewish Christians with this very subject. Now, again, A.D. 70, all the Jewish things that they were so enamored with, like the temple, are gone. And again, Christianity is spreading like wildfire. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul wrote these words. Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. For just a moment, put yourself in the sandals of Paul. It's all that he's been doing and all the great work that God has wrought through him and seeing all these people, both Jews and Gentiles, all that God is doing, bringing people into the kingdom, seeing them grow, preparing them for when he's gone. And here he is, he comes back to Jerusalem where it all began and through the Judaizers coming in and bringing in their half-lies, saying Paul's anti-Jewish when he never was. He was pro-Christ, Jesus it had to hurt him. So why did he want to be in Jerusalem? We mentioned it when we started today. Why did he want to be in Jerusalem? He wanted to preach the gospel to the Jews. He loved them. And he wanted to be there at Pentecost because so many of them would be there. And instead he's got to deal with this. It'd have to be frustrating. It'd have to be discouraging. It would have to be hard. But you just have to Persevere. He's, he's thinking, my very presence here is causing an issue for these people that I love dearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he wrote this. I am, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. So here's his attitude as this is going on, back to verse 24 and 25. What can I do to solve this problem? What can I do to help the Jewish believers at Jerusalem, Christians, to get past this? And so they offer him a compromise. Paul, would you go, we've got some guys going through a Nazarite vow, Would you go through the ritual purification with them as they fulfill their Nazarite vow, pay their expenses, which would have been sacrificial, extensive? Verse 26, Paul took them in. The next day, having been purified with them, he agrees to do it. He entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them that he was going to pay for. Here's what Paul says. I don't have any problem with them taking a Nazarite vow. And if it will help for me to participate in their Nazarite vow with them because it's not a requirement, I'll do that. I'll do what I need to do to fit in, to share, to mediate this problem that we're having. So they'll understand I still love the beauty of Judaism, but it's fulfilled in Christ. But if this will help, I'll do that. So he does. Should have solved the problem, right? Should have solved the problem. What's number two on your handout? Is arrest. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. Verse 
chapter, back to chapter 21, verse 26. He goes to the temple with them. In the temple, there was a wall that separated what was called, quote, the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. No Gentile was allowed beyond this wall into the temple proper, past the court of the Gentiles. Punishment for that, and Rome allowed them to do this, if a Gentile crossed at the court of the Gentiles in the temple proper, they were allowed, the Jews were allowed to put that Gentile to death. Now let's see what happens. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, not, not locals, these are out-of-town problem makers, seeing him in the temple, seeing Paul in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who, who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, against this place, the temple. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple. And he's defiled this holy place. He's defiled the temple. Now, in Ephesians 2, Paul wrote these words. Remember that you... Once Gentiles, writing to the church at Ephesus, you're called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. In other words, the Jews look down on you and call you the uncircumcision. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, Old Testament, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, here's that little phrase I mentioned to you earlier today. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, bullet point, now have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ, is our peace. He's made both one, Jew and Gentile. He's broken down the middle wall of separation, the court of the Gentiles. We don't have that problem in the church. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, from the two, Jew and Gentile, one, thus making peace, which is Paul's goal, that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity between the two. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. It was a big deal to Paul that he wrote about constantly. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, free male nor female, one in Christ. So he comes to the temple to help. Judaizers from, had been following him around. These are from Asia where he had been. They're there. And it's a terrible misunderstanding that they cause. Paul is at the temple to help placate all that's going on so they could, he could minister there. The Jews assume he's violating the Gentile ban. Look down at verse 28. This is the man who teaches men everywhere. Verse 29. They previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. 
In other words, they had seen Paul with a Gentile. And they just simply assumed what? He had brought that Gentile into the temple. And so they're stirring up the crowd against him. That Paul is deliberately violating the ban. So what's the result? Look at verse 26. Took the men to the temple. Verse 27. The Jews from Asia, they follow Paul to persecute him. Their charges, he teaches men everywhere. He's bringing Gentiles in. He's anti-Jew, he's anti-law, he's also, he's anti-temple. Remember, all these Jews are at Jerusalem. Why? They're all there to celebrate Pentecost together. And by this time, the celebration at Pentecost had become to celebrate God giving Moses the law at Sinai. They were there to celebrate it together as Jews. Verse 30. All the city was disturbed and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. So they stirred up the mob, the city. They grabbed Paul. They seized him. They dragged him out of the temple. Verse 31. They were seeking to kill him. News came to the commander of the garrison, the Roman commander, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. They dragged him out of the temple seeking to kill him. They were very nearly were successful. Now let's pause for a minute before we wrap this up. Paul simply going to the temple to help. The Judaizers stir the mob up. They grab him, they drag him out. They're going to kill him. Because remember, Rome would allow them in the temple, as long as you're not creating problems, that gets back to our boss, we're cool. They were going to kill him. Pause for a moment. The Holy Spirit had already told Paul what? Going to go to Jerusalem. What awaits you? Chains? Tribulations? I say this would be right there in the tribulation category. Here he is. Again, if you're getting the flesh and you're not careful, it's like, all I'm trying to do is what you want me to do, Lord. And here I am. They're going to kill me again. They're going to try again to kill me. Over and over and over again. Just let's see what happens. So he gets rescued. Shows you the hand of God. Who's in control? Who rescues him? The Roman soldiers do. Rome. They don't want anything to do with Paul and this Jesus. God uses Rome. Who's bigger? God or Caesar? God is. To rescue him. Verse 32. So it comes news of the garrison, and by the way, if you're the commander of the garrison and you're at Jerusalem, the one thing you don't want to happen is for there to be a riot at Jerusalem and then get back to Rome. If it gets back to Rome but you can't control your town, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. So this is all job protection and taking care of yourself, making sure everything goes smooth. Rome does not want any problems out there. Verse 32. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. God sends the Roman soldiers. It stops the beating. They would have beat him to death. It stops the beating. When he says it took centurions, he goes with centurions. It's at least 200 soldiers here. At least. Probably more. That'd be a pretty... You see, 200 Roman soldiers come charging in the temple. What do they know? We better calm down. 
Whatever we're doing, it ain't good, and we better calm down. Rome is here. So they stopped beating Paul. Verse 33, then the commander came near him and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. What did God say awaited him at Jerusalem? Chains and tribute. We've already got both. He asked him who he was, what he'd done. And some among the multitude cried out one thing and some another. The mob is still there. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Do you get the, do you get the sense of what the Judaizers and Satan had done with these people? They're in such a crazed frenzy. All they can think is we have to kill him. Who's that reminiscent of? Jesus Christ. What did Pilate say to Jesus Christ? What have you done? I find no fault in this. What's the deal here? Why do you want to kill him? How about Barabbas? He deserves to be killed. What's, what's this Jesus done? I can't find anything wrong with him. And the commander of the garrison, they chain, their solution to this mob frenzy is to arrest Paul, who's done what? Nothing. Just, he's just there. He's the target of their anger. So the Roman soldiers do what they're supposed to do as Roman soldiers. We've got to stop this. So the centurion, they arrest Paul. If you drop down to verse 38 for a moment. Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? They simply mistake Paul for an Egyptian terrorist that it caused them a lot of problems. Because these people were so upset with him, they arrest Paul. They put him in chains and say, why are these people so angry with you? Why do they want to kill you? Acts is the book of history, and here's your historical moment for today. From this moment forward to the end of this book, Paul will be a prisoner. Paul will be a prisoner. We talked about that earlier. Yet God is going to use him. God is going to use him. Six times we're going to see, between now and the end of the book of Acts, he's going to defend his faith. Six times. Before the mob here at Jerusalem, we'll see that next week. Before the Sanhedrin, Jewish council. Before Felix, Roman governor. Before Festus, the next Roman governor before Herod Agrippa and then before the Jews at Rome. God is going to use him. Now let's wrap this up. Verse 35, when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Verse 36, the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him! And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, You can speak Greek? Are you not that Egyptian? Verse 39, Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city or insignificant city. I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And I want to wrap up with this point today. Paul had been a Pharisee. You read over in Philippians, you read his resume, he was as Jewish as a man could be. 
He was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was self-righteous. He was a Pharisee. He, we, we all we know who Saul of Tarsus was. He was miraculously saved on the road to Damascus. He understood grace. Everything about his ministry was about grace. These people have just been, he has just been saved from, by Rome from these people beating him to death. Rome has saved him. Yes, he's been arrested, but they have rescued him from, a, from being beaten to death. My one thought would be, just get me out of here. Get me out of here. As we're going to see next week, what does Paul ask? Could I talk to him? Could I talk to them? He understood grace, and he wanted to show grace. So here's my challenge to us. As a believer, someone who knows Christ as his or her Savior, you have experienced grace, <clears throat> experienced grace. And God expects us to be gracious people, loving, forgiving, and extending grace and sharing the gospel because that's what it is. The good news is about the grace of God manifested in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. Death, burial, resurrection. We get the privilege of doing that. Paul understood that. The early church understood that. It's still the same call on our lives. It's incredible. What a privilege. Would you bow your heads, please? <clears throat> Father, as we wrap up our time together today, we, we just thank you for the privilege of being, of knowing grace, experiencing it in the person of Jesus Christ. We simply ask, as we look again at the life of Paul, even as a prisoner, he cared, he wanted to speak the truth, and then people would take his words, twist them around, and lie about him, but yet he was still gracious. Pray we could be that way as Christians. When someone, as Jesus said, when someone despitefully uses you, turn around and bless them. Someone persecutes you, ask God to bless them. Someone curses you, you bless them. Love people who hate you. It's not easy to do. That's Christ-like. That the Christ in me would come out to glorify him. Share him. So pray, Lord, you'd use us individually and as a church to do that, to share Christ. So we commit this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing together, and if you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be down front.